0: that was yet another from Talus. In that case, it's Sancti Deus, which is, again, this is music you would have heard in the court of either Henry VIII or Edward. And we are on to podcast number 10. In this case, I'm going to call it A Godly Imp. William Tyndale died in Antwerp in 1536, captured, strangled, and burned at the stake as a heretic. He had earned the ire of Henry VIII after writing and printing The Practice of a Prelate, a scathing tract that attacked Henry VIII's plans for divorce from Catherine and marriage with Anne. He had up to this point been a pursued man. There's some irony again in this, given the fact that Henry VIII had so admired his previous tract. But just two years after his death, after Tyndale's death, in 1538, would come something of a minor posthumous triumph, because it was at this time that orders were made to have an English Bible placed in every church, and the Bible that would be used was made up mostly of Tyndale's own translation. He had, in a way, then succeeded, if in a decidedly roundabout way. As we've seen, Henry's later years were characterized by what seems at times a blatant inconsistency. There were times in which he would support progress and reform, and at other times we see him persecuting evangelicals, of, of dialing back his association with either conservative or, in other times, progressive factions. He would even really move against, at times, uh, those deemed dangerous because of the radical beliefs, evangelicals, people not necessarily unlike Tyndale. It was without question a period of profound confusion. Henry had a tendency to continue his vacillating, to defend individuals at one moment and allow for the pursuit of evangelicals at another. He showed the same old eagerness to be master of all matters and to maintain the lives of individuals at his service and at his pleasure. But it was much of this back and forth that characterized the king's final years that would then carry on and characterize the beginning of his son's reign. The boy king was to rule, but who would be regent in light of his age? Children could be kings, but not without regents. If not a fully fledged king, Edward VI nevertheless had many of the qualities desired in a godly prince. His education was thorough, and it began when he was all of six years old. His tutors, Richard Cox, John Cheek, Roger Ascham, and Jean Balin, did their jobs very well. Edward knew the languages of scholarship, reading in Latin and taking his notes down in Greek, and he apparently spoke French, Spanish, and Italian. He attended sermons and took notes and read often. His first venture into writing, which may have been influenced by Archbishop Cranmer, saw him produce a treatise, The Pope's Supremacy Confuted. In which he argued that the pope was in fact the Antichrist. This came from him at the ripe old age of 12. I'm not sure what you were doing at 12, but I can tell you I was scouring books about reptiles and amphibians and not attacking the legitimacy of popes. Ed also knew his land. He studied philosophy and history and geometry and semantics. He was by these standards an ideal humanist prince, with his own collection of maps and globes. He read the Bible tirelessly, and saw his job to be that of an ideal Christian prince, and not least an evangelical prince, godly and accountable to Christ for his rule. Plans had been in place to have the young Edward marry the princess of Scotland, Mary, who would be queen of Scots, When the treaty collapsed, war with Scotland followed. This consumed Henry's later years and Edward's time on the throne as well. Edward's regency was to fall to one of two brothers, Thomas or Edward Seymour, brothers to the late queen, Jane Seymour, who had died in childbirth, if you'll recall, and who were thus Edward's uncles. It was soon made apparent that the two brothers had very different ideas about how the Protectorate should proceed. Prior to Henry's death, members of the Privy Council had worked out how to rectify the distribution of titles they felt they were owed, and thus Edward Seymour would from here out be the Duke of Somerset. And after some deliberation, a regency council, which had been devised by Henry VIII, concluded that it would be best if there was a sole regent. And in this case, they concluded that Edward's uncle Somerset would be the regent. Thomas Seymour, Somerset's younger brother and Edward's other uncle, would slip up terribly in early 1549, finding himself in a position to be tried for treason, for planning to kidnap the young king. He had tried repeatedly to curry favor with the young prince, but the kidnapping was too much. An attainder saw him executed on the 20th of March, 1549. So went one uncle. Aside from his brother's execution, Somerset had other significant problems on his hands. Not least was that of war with Scotland, the so-called rough wooing that had been in place since the end of Henry VIII's life. Somerset was himself more than capable as a warrior, and he took his military prowess and won great success in war with Scotland. But this came at very real cost. War was, no matter what, and as we've seen repeatedly, extremely expensive. And currency debasement, which if you recall from our last podcast, and which left Henry known as Old Coppernose, continued unabated under Somerset's watch... But as we'll soon find out, in light of the trillions spent in stimulus in our country, printing more money, or in this case, striking more debased coins, would lead to something called inflation. And inflation was a serious problem itself. It was one that would cause, obviously, the cost of simple everyday items to increase, not least food, such as bread. This was a very serious problem, but it. Even this paled in comparison to the slow creep of land conversion of what, if you'll recall again, had been taking place since before the 15th century and before Henry VII's reign, of the conversion and use of lands from crops and agriculture to sheep herding, to the collection of wool. This was, uh, as we've touched on before, called enclosure. An enclosure was... By this point, an incredibly serious problem. Combined with inflation, enclosure was probably the single greatest problem uh, in terms of what was happening with land usage. It was, though, almost a certain pathway to wealth for those who participated. And for many who could afford to invest, the return on investment offered from sheep was far greater than crops could offer. By the late 1540s, there were formal inquiries into the damage that was being done by enclosure. These were inquiries that were coming from the state, coming from, in particular, Somerset, who was concerned about what this inflation meant, not just for the reign of Edward, but also for how it reflected on his regency. The real problem here, and part of this crux, is that the people who could afford to invest in enclosure were often the very same ones who held the most social capital and political influence. You could see that in many cases, those who could afford to enclose spaces were also the ones who had the political clout that could get them elected to, say, parliament. And so Somerset was in a precarious position. An investigation into the wealthy was doubtless to return opposition from some powerful political figures. With the proclamation of April 1549 issued by Somerset directly, formally against enclosure, it came to to be believed by the common people that the protector had actually thrown in his lot with them; that he was willing to offer his support for commoners, for the common people against the landowners. And the response to this perceived support was in fact nothing short of catastrophic. In the summer of 1549, some 17 counties rose up in opposition to the landowners in England. This would be, to give you a sense, the equivalent of something like half of the United States rising up. Imagine if all the states west of the Mississippi rose up in armed opposition to uh, landlords. Something that might actually seem not too far off if this pandemic continues, right? But aside from this these riots that were breaking out were, at their hearts, tremendously disorganized. Many voices were against enclosure. Others, meanwhile, bemoaned religious innovations. Some others spoke uh, at the same time in favor of establishing a commonwealth. It's quite a radical idea. It was cacophonous and reflective of the troubled times, of the suffering of many up against the efforts of some. The most troubling of these at one point, and by far the best organized, came in July in Norwich, and it took as its leader, Robert Kett. Rather than simply demand changes, Kett and his followers broke down enclosures and seized for themselves thousands and thousands of sheep. They claimed these as reparations for their suffering. Armed troops were eventually enough to do away with Kett and his fellow rebels, but Kett after refusing pardon after pardon, was eventually to see himself hanged. So went one. But there was another dangerous uprising that had already been brewing. And in this case, it was out of Devon and Cornwall in the southwest of the country. And in this case, it was not simply enclosure, but instead evangelical reform that was the target of the people. This, it seemed, could be a second pilgrimage of grace to those who were most concerned. The uprising, the so-called prayer book rebellion, had as its target a new issue from the church, the book of common prayer. The book was and would be a lightning rod for controversy. It's devising at the hands of Archbishop Thomas Cranmer and its approval by the learned hand of the young King Edward was an attempt to make uniform the spiritual routines of English people. This set out in English, mind you, in English, in the vernacular, the litany, morning prayer, evening prayer, and communion. It included psalms and instructions, again in English, for marriage rituals, death, and baptism. This was perhaps the most radical piece of change with regards to religion to date, And that, insofar as it affected the majority of the people in England, this was not simply an alteration to the structure of the church. This was a complete revamping and defining of how people would practice their religion. It attempted to set a uniform church procedure then for all. And it was, in a sense, this, the straw that broke the camel's back. It was enough to move people to action. Some 7,000 rebels were re- responded to this. They responded swiftly to the issue of the prayer book. And Somerset was forced to act swiftly himself, calling supporters to arms to try to put down the rebellion. And at the end of the day, thousands were killed as a result of this uprising. With this criticism over Somerset's Regency also mounted. Cat's rebellion and what would be called the Prayer Book Rebellion led to outspoken criticism of his leadership. And jostling for control over the young prince led to Somerset's eventual defeat in late 1549, in this case by John Dudley, the Earl of Warwick. A new regent would not change necessarily the step by step progress of attempts to reform. A new protector was not enough. In the wake of the imposition of Cranmer's new prayer book, the leading members of the Privy Council doubled down on evangelical reform, matching what had become increasingly clear to be the king's own developed interests in having an evangelical reform pursuit of establishing England alongside those reformed nations of the continent. On Christmas Day, for instance, in 1549, it was ordered that Catholic service books should be burned, and that the common prayer book should be established in all churches, and that it should be illegal to remove the book. It was at this point that Princess Mary sought to flee England, fearing the full attack, fearing any full attack on her faith or Catholicism. She was even caught trying to escape in May 1550 and prevented from taking herself away to a secretly anchored Habsburg ship that was waiting to take her off to the continent. So much for the princess who the young Edward had once called his favorite. And just think how things may have turned out, how different they could have been if she did make it out of Essex and on to the Holy Roman Emperor. Overall, the struggle to control the prince between Warwick and Somerset flared up once again in late 1551, and by January 1552, the problem was decided, with Somerset sent on his way to lose his own head. So, both uncles had lost their heads. Ambiguity in the shape of religion, meanwhile, remained as far as practice went, despite reforming efforts from above. There were plenty of loopholes. In the Book of Common Prayer, and these made it so that Catholics might still believe in some cases and practice as they wanted. If rosaries were made illegal to carry, for instance, Mary and her household still nevertheless carried them. And should it seem obvious to some that the bread and wine of communion were no longer actually transubstantiated, many could still believe what they wished. And in an effort to Continue this slow march of reform in England, Cranmer and again the young king and other evangelicals issued in 1552 a second act of uniformity. This act sought to make yet more clear and uniform the process of worship in England. Importantly, also, it saw the issue of a new book of common prayer. And in this case, there would be left no questions about the Eucharist, about what happened in terms of transubstantiation. Here partakers were to be told plainly, take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee, and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. It was in no way ambiguous. Remembrance was enough, and the in, the heart by faith, left no questions about the fact that this was a symbolic act. This was to be one in a series of steps, moreover, steps that would see Archbishop Cranmer lock in step with his godson, King Edward VI, moving towards establishing England as another evangelical reformed nation, again much like those on the continent. But the boy king was growing ill, and he knew as much. In a last-ditch effort to preserve their progress, Edward and Cranmer set out to subvert the succession, Removing Mary and his sister, her sister Elizabeth, in favor of the daughter of Henry VIII's sister's line. This would mean that Mary Tudor's daughter, Frances, the Duchess of Suffolk, would have her daughter, Lady Jane Grey, in line to the throne. Fortunately for the fate of the Protestant succession, Grey had already been wed to Warwick's now Northumberland's son, Guilford Dudley. A tenuous connection to the preservation of religion had thus been established, and it could not have come sooner. Edward VI died on the 6th of July, 1553. He was fifteen years old.